<laughs> I might, I may need it. Let's pray for the children and then dismiss them to Children's Church. Especially since some of them may be a year older by the time we're done. <laughs> Holy Father, we thank you for the fact that, that we, you have blessed us with the children. You've blessed us with, you entrusted them to us that we might lead them in the way they should go. We pray that you would help us to do that. I ask that you would give them um, the patience and the understanding to hear what, what is taught to them today, that it might change their lives going forward. For in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. In 1989, Rich Mullins was on tour in the United States. And the biography of him says this. He says, each night he performed the same ritual before going on stage. He had a dry erase board and some markers. Each night he drew a map of the earth and ordered the continents, outlined the continents, and then started filling in the countries. He would do this at a fast and furious pace. Remember that fast and furious pace part. Um, until the tour manager told him it was time to go on. Then he would stop and write these words above the map. This is the world as best as I can remember it by Rich Mullins. And the albums that came out of that tour were, in fact, called The World as Best as I Remember It. I'm going to steal his title a little bit, just make a little tiny tweak to it, and call it The Word as Best as I Remember It. I've wanted to do this for some time. I wondered whether, and we'll all wonder until I'm done, I wondered whether it would be possible to teach, to preach a sermon that took the whole Bible and touched, briefly, all the books of the Bible from the beginning to the end and showed how they fit together. I think sometimes we think that it doesn't all fit together, but it really does. So we'll see whether that can, can be done. Can I show you how the parts fit? We will see if that will work. We will start with the historical backbone of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, the Gospels, and the book of Acts. I'm going to, you're never supposed to apologize. I'm going to apologize for the slides because I didn't think of copying certain files over, so some of the, these fonts are going to be messed up. Okay. That's the backbone. We're going to take that, go through that, and then we're going to see how the rest of the books fit, to get, fit in. We'll move very quickly. And I will no doubt leave out most of your favorite parts, okay? <laughs> but that's not, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to try to see how it fits, okay? So I'll leave out a, a lot of parts. I'll go very quickly, and then sometimes we'll stop, and you'll go, why is he spending so much time on this, obviously? It'll be because it's going to come up again. It's something that I think is critical. It's something that helps tie parts of the Bible together. Maybe you'll see the Bible in a different light when we're done. Let's pray. Holy Father, this is what you say for us. This is what you had written down so we would know what was there. We pray that you'd help us to, to be able to hear this and see how your, your word fits together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, of course, a very good place to start. Bereshit bara Elohim at Hashemayim Vaharetz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning, it was chaotic. 
But the Spirit of God was working, and God brought light into the creation, and he separated the light from the darkness, and he separated the earth from the sky, and he separated the dry land from the oceans, and he saw that it was good. Tov. That's the Hebrew word for good. He saw that it was good. And God called forth vegetation on the planet, plants that would bear seeds and spread trees with fruit that would ensure their proliferation, and he saw that it was good. Tov. And God established the sun and the moon and stars to separate the day and the night to be signs for seasons and days and years, and he saw that it was tov, good. God made the creatures of the sea and the creatures of the... I'm not going to actually read the entire Bible to you just in case you're worried about that. <laughs> just right now, it's really important. He made sure that they would be fertile and multiplying. And he saw that it was good, tov. And then in his delight, God said this. Genesis 1.26, Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over the creatures that move on the earth. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. And God saw all that he had made and said it was tov tov. It was very good. That's the way you say very good. You say the word twice in Hebrew. Tov tov. And man in God's image was free. Free to choose to obey or rebel. To act with God or to act against him. To submit or to shake his fist at God. And God saw that it was very good that he had made mankind this way. First great idea of the Bible is the idea that God made everything there is. And when he made it, it was good. When he made it, it was good. It's not good now. You just have to look around and you see it's not good now. But when he made it, it was good. Because he made it, he owns it. It's his. He controls it. He can do with it as he wishes. He controls its characteristics. He controls its movements. He controls its fertility. That's a big part of the beginning. He controls procreation. He controls the fertility of the plants and the animals and people. From the idea of creation, we quickly learn the idea of God's sovereignty, God's control over his creation. And God finished his work and rested on the seventh day. Don't try to take notes, Brad. You might sprain your hand. He tried. He, he made it and he rested on the seventh day. And then. And then the glorious tapestry of creation began to unravel as the man and the woman exercised their freedom to rebel against a creator who had declared everything was very good. That rebellion we call sin, but it may be more useful to us to think of it as rebellion because it's a very important part of it. It's a rebellion against God. And that's the problem the Creator is dealing with. His very good creation is out of whack because of this. And he cannot ignore that. He can't just go, well, whatever. He, he cannot do that. 
Now, what can he do? Well, he could destroy everything and start over. <laughs> Autumn is not pleased with this idea. He could have done that. He could have destroyed everything and started over. Or he could repair and restore what has been marred. Being God, he takes the long view of this. And he chooses to repair what he's made. Being God, he chooses to do it in a way that's not entirely predictable to us. He does it in a surprising way. And so the first few chapters of Genesis develop the problem of human rebellion. And chapters 4 through 11 have the beginnings of all sorts of things. That's why it's called Genesis. Okay, All sorts of things start. Murder, cities, languages, all sorts of things. And we learn a lot more about God's character, his holiness, his judgment, his mercy. And we begin to get hints in the beginning of Genesis about the fourth great idea, the idea of redemption. Redemption is the word we use to describe the way God is able to fix something that's been messed up and make it tov again. God's going to fix things in a special way, and that way is going to involve a man. We begin to get that clue even at the beginning. And in chapter 12, God calls a man, Abram. The first set of part of Genesis is very different from the second part. The second part, God calls a man, Abram. We're not told why. Lots of things we're not told in the Bible. We're not told why God calls Abram. He's a pagan. He lives in Iraq, or where we call Iraq. And God speaks to him, and he calls, and he makes a promise to him. He says, if you will do what I tell you to do, I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you a land that will be yours. I'm going to make your descendants extraordinarily numerous. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Three things. Those three things are extremely important. And you have to keep those in your head for the rest of the sermon, at least. If you keep them in your head after that, it would be good. Well, Abram does this. Amazingly, Abram decides to move. Move means walk at this time from Iraq to Israel, for our country's purposes anyway. And he moves and he waits 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 for 25 years. And there's no kid. And he lives in a place, yeah, he lives in a place, but it's not his place. And this blessing thing isn't working out so well either. Nothing is happening. And Abraham says, God, what's going on there? He wonders to God, what is happening? And God reassures him that God will do what he said he would do back in Genesis 12. And Genesis says, Abram believed the Lord... And, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. So Abram's belief in what the Lord had promised was something that God counted as righteousness. It was a righteous act. After a number of false starts, which we won't go into, God gives Abram, now Abraham, and Sarah a son, Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob has... 12 sons. Finally, we're getting this thing underway, right? He has 12 sons. That Now it's beginning to look like that part about the, the many descendants might actually work. He has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, 
Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And because people are still horrible to each other and can't get along, Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. But because God is a God of redemption, he works with the human choices of the brothers to accomplish the purposes that he has. God works within human freedoms to accomplish his freedom. Joseph, because he is sold into slavery, goes to Egypt. And because he's in Egypt, he's able to save his brothers and father from starving. And if you want to know how, you have to read Genesis. Keep on moving. And Genesis ends without a land, with about 70-something people, descendants of Abraham and Sarah. But God had promised something else. You may not think this is a promise. You may think it's more like a threat. God had told Abraham that your, your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. 400 years. You don't need that kind of a promise, do you? Well, when we move to the second book of the backbone, Exodus, the descendants of Abraham have become very numerous, millions, more than a million, in Egypt, but they're all slaves. Since the beginning, God has been revealing him more and more about himself. He reveals himself to Moses. That's the burning bush, you remember that. He reveals himself as a God who has control over nature. Not surprising, since he made it. And a God who desires relationship with men and women. Men and women. That's the mankind word, okay? He reveals himself to Moses as Yahweh. He gives himself a name that he tells Moses, Yahweh, I am who I am, or I am, to show that he's not part of creation. He's not dependent on creation because he's the creator. And although Pharaoh doesn't want to give up his workforce, God leads the nation out of Egypt. That's the exodus. He works miracles through Moses, and his miracles demonstrate his power over the Egyptian gods. By the way, this is probably the first time where we know the actual date something might have happened. The Exodus is probably in 1446 B.C. Not everybody will agree with that, but not everybody agrees that Al-Qaeda knocked down the, the World Trade Centers, too, either. So history is a matter of probabilities, okay? That's what we can know. And it seems to have happened in 1446. I'll tell you that so you, it nails you down. And the people set out into the desert, Okay? And they whine because of water and various things. And they whine, but eventually, very quickly, they come in just a matter of days to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on the mountain to be told what God wants. And it turns out that God basically wants three things. He wants to be able to communicate with his people. He's chosen Moses to be the mediator, the prime person between the nation, and God. Secondly, he wants them to enter into a kind of a contract with him. We call that in Bible language a covenant. He wants to to work a deal with them. He's brought them out of Egypt, and he wants to take them to the land that he promised to Abraham. And he wants to make that as part of a contract. Thirdly, he wants the people to do the things he tells them to do, because it will go much better 
it'll go much better if they do. He warns them of the problems they'll have if they're disobedient, if they're rebellious. And we've seen some of that already. Well, they choose to enter into this contract, this covenant with Yahweh. The first thing he wants them to do is he wants them to build a meeting place for them. And because they're on the move, it's going to be a tent. And the thing is called the tabernacle. And it's a tent that'll be a place, not that God can live in, in the sense that he's a little person that can go inside a tent, but it'll be a place where they will meet. And he gives Moses these extremely detailed instructions. It's about six or seven chapters of instructions about how to build the tabernacle. And Moses brings the instructions down, and what have the people done? Well, they've made a golden calf, and they're worshiping the golden calf. That's an idol. They're worshiping something they had made. And of course, this is not very pleasing to God, because God had made them, and said, you're not supposed to worship things you make, you're supposed to worship the one who made you. And so God's displeased. And the whole thing just about goes off the rails at that point. But the people repent. That means to change your mind about what's right and wrong and change your mind to God's way. And so they build the tabernacle. And there's five and a half chapters of them building the tabernacle, which is virtually exactly the same words as that other seven chapters to show the point that they built it God's way. Exactly. And at the end of Exodus, it says that the glory of the Lord came into the tabernacle. And what that means is this is a visible sign of God's approval of what they had done and his presence with them. In Leviticus, the people are still at, this is not part of the narrative backbone, but this is the next thing that happens. In Leviticus, the people are still at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And God is giving Moses a long list of laws, okay? I put in here a bewildering list of instructions because the parts of it are bewildering. This is the law. They're told what to eat, what to wear, who not to marry, how to get rid of mold, really, what to do with people when they're sick, when to work, when not to work. They're told uh, many, many things. They are taught, most importantly, that they are separate people. They've entered into a contract with Yahweh and they're different because of that. There's a special word for this. Kadosh. Holy. They are holy. In fact, the, the, the Lord says, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. You are set apart for a purpose. That's what that word means. But of course, they have no better chance of perfect obedience to the law than you have of flying to California for lunch today. It's not going to happen. They can't perfectly do it. And so Leviticus also provides a system of sacrifices, all that, you know, all those sacrifice stuff, in order to restore them to a right relationship with God when they rebel against him, when they sin. And it gives the nation instructions for worship. Yahweh is holy. He is set apart. And it's important that the people obey Yahweh and worship him. Well, when God has given them these laws, these laws, they leave Sinai and they go off on what's supposed to be an 11-day journey to get to the promised land because that was what was promised. That's why they called it the promised land. Right, yes, that's exactly the point. It's the place that they were promised to go. It's going to take about 11 days from Mount Sinai. And they go and they get there at Kadesh Barnea and they're going to go into the land. 
And they say, well, why don't we send some spies into the land? And this actually makes good sense. The spies go in. And the spies go all through all the land that was promised. And they come back. And basically the spies have two messages when they come back. The first one is, wow, okay, that is a really, really wonderful place. It is unbelievable. But they have a second message, and the second message is, and there is no way we can, can displace the people who are, who are there now. It's just not going to happen. It says, they, they look at us like they look at grasshoppers, okay? They're so powerful, we're so... We're so weak. Which is true as far as it goes. But they're forgetting something. Less than two years ago, God had brought them out of Egypt. And he had done, through, done it through miraculous means. And he was committed to bringing them to the promised land. But they leave him out of the equation. And they say, well, we can't do that. We could never do that. And God is understandably unhappy with this. It is kind of an anti-worship, right? Instead of seeing God for his, in his greatness, they're saying there's one of two things wrong here. Either, God, you are not all that powerful, or you don't really care. You're faithless. You would promise something that you can't deliver. So in case you ever thought that it was kind of petulant of God to be displeased over that, think about it. He had just done this within the memory of virtually all of them. I suppose some of them died in those two years, but it's been within two years that they were let out. Well, God says, fine. None of you are going to go into the promised land. But God had promised it, right? God had promised to take the nation into the promised land. Fine, you're not going in. Other than two, but you know that story. You're not going in. But I'm going to still keep my promise. And in fact, so what they did is they wandered around for, for 38 years. This is the wilderness, wilderness wanderings, right? They wandered around for 38 years. And finally, at the very end of Moses' life, they come to a different place, not Kadesh Barnea this time, but a different place on the east of the Jordan. And they can look into the promised land. And that's where they're going to go in. And the book of Deuteronomy is essentially a series of sermons that Moses gives as the last words that he'll have before the people, the nation, goes into the promised land as God had promised. Okay? God manages to let the people who have rebelled not go in, but keep his promise about the nation, because the nation will still go in and just be the younger ones. Joshua is the story of the nation entering the promised land and conquering it more or less in about seven years. And Judges describes a period of over 300 years, though it's not much longer than Joshua in, in length, where the people established themselves in the land given them by Yahweh. They repeatedly disobey Yahweh. And when they do, bad things happen. Typically, they fall into slavery to some other nation until... It gets so bad that they cry out to God, and God sends them a deliverer, a shofat, a judge, a person to lead them out of their slavery. And when they're led out of their slavery, they have rest. Okay, They have, have rest in the land. And then, of course, being people, they disobey again.
and it starts over again. The next book in, in your Bible is Ruth. We'll come back to Ruth. But it's there because it happens during the time and the period of Judges. The next book is Samuel. You have two books in your Bible, but they're really just two parts of one long book, Samuel. And Samuel tells the story of how Israel gets kings. Well, first of all, Israel wants kings. They want a king. They want a king. Please, God, give us a king because we'd like to be like the other nations. This is not, this is not a good thing. Okay? There, it is an insulting thing to say to God, who is the king by virtue of the covenant, that you want a human king so you can be like the other nations. But they do say that, and God says, okay, I will give you a king, the king that you would choose for yourself if you knew everything. And so he gives him a king, Saul. And Saul is the kind of king that we would all pick. He's tall. He's powerful. He looks like a warrior. He's the kind of person you would want to lead you in battle. He's the biggest guy in Israel. Okay? He looks like a king. And so he's a king. And he has a problem. Okay? He makes mistakes. He disobeys. He rebels. Now, that's not even his problem. His problem is that when he's confronted about those things, he blames it on somebody else. Over and over again. If, if he's told that he did something wrong by the prophet, then he says, well, I, it was the people. It was the people. Or, I had a really good idea, and I did it that way, even though God says something else. That's Saul's problem. And God gets fed up with him, and God says, I'm going to put a king on the throne who's the king that I would choose, the kind of person who's a king, a man after my own heart, and he chooses David. Now, David makes mistakes and disobeys and rebels, just like Saul. He, you, you could line them up, and you couldn't choose between one or the other for how good they are at doing exactly what they're supposed to do. David does some pretty horrific things, and you know most of them. But David is different from Saul. And when David is confronted with sin and rebellion, and, and somebody says to him, you are doing wrong, he says, you're right. What do we call that when you agree with God? It's repentance. And that's what David does differently. He promptly sees things from God's perspective and he changes his mind. That does not always repair the problem. Rebellion typically always has consequences. But it does repair his relationship with God. Now, David is a warrior. It's one of the things he's learned. The way God trained David to be a king was he let Saul try to kill him for 25 years. So maybe that's where they get the idea of basic training and things like that. Basically, this was miserable experience where David is always running away and Saul is always trying to kill him with an army. But it does train David, and he's trained to be a warrior, and he pushes back the nations that are around the promised land, the pushes back the nations that are around Israel. And the Lord makes a covenant with David that says, your descendants will be on the throne forever. And he does this despite David's imperfections. The book of Kings, again, one book, two parts, opens with an old King David. His son Solomon then succeeds him as king. And because of the work his father had done, Solomon is able to enjoy peace and prosperity. 
and he's able to do the job that the Lord gives to him to do, which is to build a temple. And he built an elaborate temple. And a lot of the bits about the temple sound a lot like the bits about the tabernacle. The temple is going to be a place where, where God will, in a sense, meet his people. This will be a place where there's a, it's as though there was a wormhole between heaven and earth. Okay, that's, It's not literally that. I don't think that. Please don't write that down. Okay, But it's like that. It's a point where heaven and earth meet. And just like the tabernacle, at the end of the building of the temple, it says, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Well, by the end of Solomon's life, he has married many women from other nations, and he has brought their religions in with him. This is rebellion, and it always has consequences. And God says, your son will only be able to rule over the southern half of the kingdom, and somebody else is going to get the northern half of the kingdom. And so the kingdom divides. This is 931 B.C. This is a judgment, of course, but there's a plan as well. God incorporates the free choices of the people. Other free choices are being made by other peoples. The Assyrians freely decide to invade and conquer the northern kingdom. They take the people into captivity, because if you take them away from their land, they can't rebel against you. The Babylonians come in, they take the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And all of Israel is in captivity. Eventually, the Persians take over from the Babylonians. And now, the Persians are different because the Persians allow people to go back to their lands. Those events are described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. What about the other books of the Old Testament, which I better go really fast here. Well, the, the book of Chronicles, again, one book, two parts, describes many additional historical details from the time of Samuel and Kings. And it gives genealogies and various little historical details that don't fit. It seems to focus on the idea of obedience to Yahweh as being um, something that will bring blessing on Israel. Ruth is a marvelous story about a woman who marries a Hebrew man. And she's a Moabite. She's not a, she's not a Jew. And she marries and he dies and she ends up going back to Israel with her mother-in-law. You know this story. And it's a wonderful story, not because it sounds like some sort of a romance novel. It does tend to sound like that to our ears. But that's not what's really going on. What's really going on is this woman who is a young widow and who would never be accepted in her home country of Moab anymore and would never be accepted in Israel anymore is nevertheless extended grace by a man named Boaz and he marries her and he, he, she's his wife Okay, and it's a wonderful story that illustrates grace but more than that it has a historical significance because Ruth is the I'll mess this up but it, she's the great 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 grandmother of David The grace 
that Boaz displays to Ruth is the grace that God displays to Israel in raising David up, a man after his own heart. Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God, except for the whole book is about God and how he directs the forces of history to allow um, the people to go back into the land, okay? She's in in Persia, you know, some of that story. There are five wisdom books, which are not at all narratives. Job seems to take place in the same period as the second half of Genesis. We don't know exactly when Job takes place. It's very hard to to pin it down, but it sounds like it would be about the time of of Abraham. It deals with, you know this, suffering and pain and trust. It's mostly in poetry. It's hard to understand. It makes the point that there's a lot more going on than meets the human eye. The Psalms are individual poems written over hundreds of years by lots of different people. We think of it as being the Psalms by David, but they're not all by David by a long shot. At least one of them's by by Moses, and there's others in there as well. They're like poems, like all poems. They're they specialize in emotional content, right? Some of them are for special occasions or personal triumphs or tragedies or something, some worship of God in specific, but all manner of things, pleasant things and unpleasant things. The proverbs, like the Psalms, are short literary bits. Some of them are as short as as two lines. They're about wisdom. They're not promises. We talked about promises. They're not promises. They're not things that will always happen. They are things that are general principles for life and general principles for how to live wisely before God. The Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon or Canticle of Canticles, if you have a, a different Bible, is a book that's connected also with Solomon's wisdom. Many of the Proverbs were by Solomon. It seemed to reflect Solomon's meditations on love between a man and a woman. It's a, it seems like that's what it's about, okay? Some people take it metaphorically to be about God and Israel, or about Christ and the church, but at least at face value, it's about human love. Ecclesiastes, which is also associated with Solomon, reflects a world-weary wisdom that's reached by somebody at the, at the end of his life. It really sounds like Solomon could have written this at the very end of his life as king, after a lot of things have gone wrong. The attitude is extremely realistic. Everything is meaningless, he says. Everything is meaningless. But it does suggest how a person should live their life before God. At the end of Ecclesiastes, he says this, Having heard everything, I have reached this conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the whole duty of man. For God will evaluate every deed, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. The last 17 books of the Old Testament are associated with various prophets which spoke to the nation of Israel. There are four major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Isaiah spoke to the southern kingdom over a very long period of time in a very long book. 
he was speaking to people about the fact that the Assyrians had come and taken away the north. And what did that mean? Is God still faithful? They wondered whether Yahweh was really the sovereign God if half of his chosen people had just been sucked off by the, the Assyrians. He spoke about what they should do now and how they should live now and what God would do in the future. And he looks to the, to the future and, and writes about Messiah. Okay, And Messiah is the one, we've gotten a glimpse already, uh, he's the man who's going to rule the triumphant king. He's going to be the king in that line of David, and he's going to be the one through whom God fixes everything. And it's Isaiah that gives us in chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew that means God with us. And then in, in chapter 9, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this, that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty, Yahweh Almighty, will accomplish this. The Messiah will be the one who will rule on David's throne. He will be the fulfillment of the promise made to David about an everlasting dynasty. And yet, Isaiah also said some other things some troubling things. He says in Isaiah 53, he talks about a suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is very hard to understand how that fits. Well, Jeremiah speaks to the southern kingdom and announces the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, and it's going to fall to the Babylonians. And he tells them that, and then he writes a poem about it, which is Lamentations. Ezekiel, on the other hand, is written from exile. Ezekiel is now in Babylon, and he is preaching to the exiles in, in Babylon. He is teaching them why they're in exile and what they need to do. He is telling them that the Lord is not finished with them as a people. Because he could have been, right? I depart from my script. He could have been, right? When he had the first issue about what to do with the creation, when it went wrong, he could have just wiped it out and started over. But he didn't do that, and he doesn't do it here. Ezekiel tells him that God is not finished. Daniel is a very interesting book. Daniel's taken into captivity, and the first part of Daniel is a, is a narrative about that. It's a narrative about Daniel's determination to be holy even in a pagan nation. And you know those stories, the Dan, you know, Daniel and the lion's den and not eating the food and all that sort of thing. 
The second part of Daniel is prophetic, where he's looking forward to things that are going to happen in the near term and in the long term. And Daniel introduces some important phrases and ideas such as the kingdom of heaven, a phrase that we'll hear in the New Testament, and the Son of Man as a title for the Messiah. And then we come to the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I cannot begin to do them justice. I will do a little bit more than what I just did, which was read their names. One, One or two more things. They, for the most part, are not looking forward to events. They're not prophets in the sense that they're foretelling what's going to happen. Much of what they do is sort of editorializing on what's going on around them. They're the ones who say, this is not right, what you're doing. This is not right. God is not pleased. Micah tells the Jews, for example, of the southern kingdom, that God does not desire extravagant sacrifices, but it says in 6.8, the Lord has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It doesn't mean the God of your choosing. It means the God, Yahweh, that God. That's the message of the minor prophets. And that's the Old Testament. Woo. Okay, but I'm going to finish. I really am. It won't be too much longer. You know the New Testament much better, so I don't have to put so much of it together for you. Most of the Old Testament concerns the relationship between Yahweh and the nation he chose to accomplish his purposes. Several hundred years pass. Many things happen during those 700 years, but the Bible is more or less silent about that history. This is the time of Alexander the Great, the rise of the Roman Empire, and that sort of thing. But God preserves Israel, a little nation, in the midst of these big, powerful nations. And we come to 40 B.C., and the Roman Senate appoints Herod as king of an area which included Jerusalem and much of the Promised Land. Yahweh is worshipped in the land, but it is not a pure worship. Much like the time of the divided kingdom, they're, they're not pure in their worship of God. They follow other gods, and it's all mixed together, and it's a mess. Herod is a Yahweh worshiper in name only. He does build a magnificent temple. That's the temple that's, that is in the Gospels. Life is not easy under Roman rule, and increasingly the people are looking for Messiah. They are looking for that triumphant king who will lead a rebellion against Rome and who will free them from the constraints that are on them. And the ones that are the best worshipers of Yahweh are the ones that are the most zealous for this to happen. They are waiting, they are praying, God, give us a Messiah. And so we come to four... B.C., and we come to the New Testament. The first four books, of course, provide four different perspectives on the life of Jesus. The first, Matthew, begins like this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ is Messiah, that's just the the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and so forth. 
It's another one of the dreaded genealogies, but as we've seen before, it's not that dreaded. It's a way of compactly reminding them of the history of how God chose to fix things. Reminds them of the history of Israel back to the time of Abraham. So immediately we see the Gospels begin to slot into the Old Testament. And Jesus' great, 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 lots of greats, grandmother is Ruth. The second gospel, I'm not finished with Matthew, but the second gospel, Mark, begins with a direct quotation from Isaiah. It says, The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. That's about John the Baptist. The third gospel, Luke, repeatedly goes back to the Old Testament, either by quotations or by drawing parallels with the stories, with characters from Israel's history. When Mary, for instance, praises the Lord for the fact that she's going to have Jesus, it is purposely described in terms that are very reminiscent of Hannah responding in a poem, same way, when she's going to have a son, when she finds out that she will have a son in 1 Samuel. The fourth gospel, John, begins even more obviously out of the Old Testament because it begins like this, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. N-R-K, hey-ha-logos. That's the way it begins. In the beginning. Well, it's consciously quoting from Genesis 1-1. These Gospels are not disconnected from the Old Covenant. Every one of them goes out of their way to say, this is part of that. It's new, but it's not different. It's not disconnected. It's new, but it's not disconnected. In fact, in John 1, in the, still in the first chapter, it's, John says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt is tabernacle. It's the same word that they use for that tent. So it, you could say it like this. The, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the place where God and man come together. Well, that's a pretty good way of putting it, isn't it? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory, glory, glory. That's what we saw at the end of the tabernacle. That's what we saw in the temple. That's what we see in Jesus If the tabernacle was the mobile place where Yahweh met Israel, Jesus is the mobile place where God meets all people. The Gospels are telling us about something new, but not something that hasn't been in preparation from the beginning. This is the the story of the one who is promised, who is hinted at in Genesis, who is promised in Samuel, and is predicted in Isaiah. The anointed one, Messiah Christ, is born about 1,442 years after the Exodus. This is the way that Yahweh has decided to repair the world that was broken. Well, Jesus is predicted by prophets. He's heralded by angels. He's baptized by John the Baptist. He does his first miracle with wine, for goodness sakes, at a wedding. He calls 12 disciples. He heals people. He casts out demons. He preaches to the poor. He tells people that the kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, that's Daniel, isn't it? He tells people 
that they're supposed to be perfect like God is perfect, that's Leviticus. And he refers to himself as the Son of Man. That's Daniel again. And always he says, don't preach about me. Don't tell about me now. When Jesus heals lepers, when he raises the dead, when he heals a bleeding woman, it reminds us of Leviticus where lepers and dead people and bleeding people are unclean and you're not allowed to touch them. If you do touch them, you become unclean. But not Jesus. When Jesus touches them, goes the other way. They become clean. He doesn't become unclean. He heals them. He restores them. His holiness is contagious. His holiness. You shall be holy, for I am holy. When Jesus walks on the water, when he stops a raging storm, when he causes a tree to die, he shows that he is the God who has control over creation. He has power over everything that he's made. He teaches like the prophets. He is insistent that God's standards are not less stringent than, than we had thought. They are more stringent. He does, God doesn't just want us to be perfect. He wants us to be not just perfect in action. He wants us to be perfect in our minds. Don't even think those sinful things. Don't think about rebellion. And his disciples come to realize that Jesus is this person, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who will be the triumphant king. But there's something that they don't quite understand because he doesn't quite act like their picture of Messiah. Peter and the others were forced to realize that Jesus had to be the Messiah because of the miracles that he did. But there was no great army There's no rebellion against Rome. There's no white stallion, no sword. Jesus says, who do you say I am? And when they say, you're the Messiah, he begins to stretch their idea of what the Messiah is. And he says things like this. He says, the rulers, the religious rulers, are going to speak against me and arrest me and kill me and I will rise from the dead. And the disciples cannot process this. But things begin to happen that way. And although the people briefly recognize him as Messiah, that's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, very quickly it all goes poorly again. And the Jewish leaders and Herod and Pilate, through their actions and their inactions and their aggression and their passivity, through the things they understand and the things they cannot comprehend, They bring Jesus to the place where they're going to execute him. And you know what happened. Like a criminal between two criminals, by the most horrendous form of of execution that the the Roman Empire knew, Jesus is crucified. And we recall Isaiah's words, his appearance was disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. And when Jesus cries out from the cross, we think of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads 
saying he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And so each of the Gospels climaxes at the crucifixion, but they don't end there. Jesus, who has been executed and buried, is resurrected from the dead. Just as he had predicted. He was dead, but now he's alive. And he gives his followers instructions. He says, now is the time to preach. Now is the time to talk. Now is the time to tell people about me. And the Gospels end, but the Gospel of Luke doesn't exactly end there. Luke, it turns out, is volume one of a two-part book. The second part is Acts. And Luke continues to write, if the first volume is about Jesus, the second volume is about the church. Ken's been teaching through Acts So I will not establish a long bit about Acts, but Acts is the story of the spread of the church in Jerusalem, in Judea, and then in the whole eastern Mediterranean. It tells the story of the gospel spreading through Jesus' disciples, in particular Peter, and then through Paul. Paul is somebody who is not one of the disciples, but he's an incredibly bright, incredibly intense, incredibly conservative Jewish rabbi who hates Christianity and the way that it has twisted, Jesus' teachings have twisted what he thinks is right. And God confronts him, and he has a vision, and he changes. And he goes from being the biggest enemy of the church to the, to the leading proponent of taking it beyond. Peter and Paul see that when what Jesus taught, the miracles that he did, and most of all the death that he died, are the culmination, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. When God devised a plan to fix the world he had made and that had been marred, when he decided how to repair Israel's rebellion, when he decided how to fix the effects of sin, everything comes down to Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. And so Peter and Paul and the others preach, and they heal, and they keep on getting thrown into prison. That's the story of Acts. And they write. They write letters. Paul, who travels more than any of them, travels throughout all of the eastern Mediterranean area. He visits synagogues. When he visits synagogues, he tells how the Old Testament fits into this new thing. And some of them believe, and some of them don't. And he usually gets kicked out of the synagogues after a certain period of time. And he also preaches not just to Jews, but to Gentiles, because he takes, what was number three? He takes the third promise to Abram, seriously, through you, through your sentence, all the nations will be blessed. So he preaches to the Gentiles, which is totally crazy for a Jew. They would never do that. They wouldn't eat with Gentiles. And he was, he was as strict as anybody. He literally was as strict as anybody. Everywhere he, he visits, he leaves churches. And when he's away from the churches, he writes them letters. He writes 13 letters that are preserved for us. He writes Galatians which urges believers not to think that it is enough to follow the rituals of the Old Testament. That won't do it with God. Not when you've been saved by grace. Not when you have been restored to a right relationship with God through the work that Jesus did. Following the law won't work. 
Romans, which lays out the impossibility of pleasing God any other way. And yet, and yet, whether you're a pagan or a very religious person, a Jewish person, or you're very religious in some other, or maybe you just don't, none of it's going to make God pleased. In fact, even if you try to do everything right, it's not going to make God happy. It's not going to do it for God. It's not going to restore your relationship with God. But while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Ephesians, which explains how the Jews and the Gentiles have been brought together into one believing people, the church. He writes letters to the Thessalonians, the Corinthians, the Colossians, and the Philippians, which give teaching and encouragement about how to live a life before God. He writes a short letter to Philemon, a man who has had a slave run away from him, saying, the slave... The slave has become a believer, and I'm asking to receive him back as a brother. And Paul made the slave carry the letter back, which I suppose shows that he had a sense of humor, even though he was really intense. First and Second Timothy and Titus reflect on Paul's ministry and how it's going to continue through those who's trained. Peter writes First and Second Peter. Jesus' half-brothers write Jude and James to teach and encourage believers. And somebody wrote Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Somebody wrote Hebrews to show how Jesus' work relates to the Old Testament and to the sacrifices. As, as the sacrifices were temporary, the work that Jesus does as the sacrifice on the cross is permanent. As the sacrifices were imperfect, Jesus, though, is perfect. Jesus leads us, says the writer of the book of Hebrews, into the holy presence of God. And he makes us clean. They could have never gone into the presence of God in the tabernacle or the temple. And the Apostle John writes three letters, and then he writes a very strange book. The book of Revelation, or sometimes known as Apocalypse. Sometimes known as Revelations, but that's wrong, so don't say that. Okay. The Apocalypse is fine. Revelation is fine. Revelation recounts visions which John has about the future of, of the world. It seems to be during the time that he's um, exiled under the Roman Emperor Domitian. And he describes the time when Jesus will return as a triumphant king that Isaiah had written about. And the book of Revelation says very simply, God wins. Redemption will be completed. And at the end of the book, Jesus says these words. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. He's the root because he's before David and he's the descendant because he's after David in the line the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who wants it take the water of life free of charge. So at the end of Revelation, we see grace again. God's fixed it all. Jesus is Lord. 
and you've been invited to drink the water of life. Rich Mullins tried to remember what the world looked like because he believed it was central to his life's purpose to remember that what he was singing about and what he was singing for and the reason he was doing all this touring was for the people of the world. I think God desires us to remember what his word looks like because it is central to his purpose for us. So from Genesis to Ruth to Samuel to Matthew to Hebrews to Revelation, we have an unbroken story of God's redemptive work. What needed to happen beginning in Genesis 3 has been brought to culmination by the end. God makes people with freedoms, which he does not violate. He lets you freely choose. And yet God is sovereign. Your freedom does not trump God's freedom. In the end, he will finish it. He will make it the way he wants. He will redeem the world that he has made. He exercises his freedom to make his broken creation tov. And he wanted you to know that. So he had it written down. Let's pray. Holy Father, there's a lot here. There's a lot more than I said, and there's a lot that I said that probably wasn't quite right. But I pray that you would make us the kind of people who would want to know more. That you would whet our curiosity. That you would help us to see that all of this is a story of your work. All of this is what you have done to repair the ill that was done. All of this, the cost borne by you, your son, that we might freely have the water of life. It is in Jesus' holy name we pray. And through the power of his blood that we are allowed to come to God.